Hey, it's Brent Leary. It is uh, see day two, Tuesday, second day in a row doing a live stream. This is not the BBC. Well, it is the BBC, but it's not that BBC. It's the Brent Broadcasting Channel. And uh, this is really cool. So here with me today, this may be the coolest last name that I've had on the on the show so far. Uh, Matt, Matthew, but we're just going to call him Sweezy from this point on. So, hey, man, Sweezy, thank you for joining me, man. Hey, what's up? Glad to be here. Man, see, I would, if I had like a cool last name like that, I'd be doing just, you know, going by my last name too. But Leary, uh, it just doesn't work like Sweezy does, man, so. It's fun. <laughs> I like that. It's cool, man. So first of all, before we get you know too far into the cool talk, I mean, you do have like a day job. He is the director of market strategy over at Salesforce, and he's also the author. Of, I just like the name of this book, The Context Marketing Revolution. We're going to have to talk about what that all means, of course. But sure. man, I'm just it's just cool to have you here. Thanks for joining me, man. Hey, man. Loving it. All right. So we had like a little chat last week. And we had to cut it off because we were talking about too many good things. We wanted to save some of the good things for today. But first of all, let's just tell me, what, what is the context marketing revolution? Why don't you start with that? Oh, well, all right, cool. So the easiest way to kind of make this short is to break the title down into kind of a few basic words. Number one, first word is context. Um, and so what does this word mean in, in the context of the book? Um, and so what the book really talks about is I'm arguing for a new definition for the word of marketing. And here's why. If you look at marketing, marketing is a game. We need to think about it as a game. And the, the rules that we believe, the truisms that we know, such as no such thing as bad press, um, sex sells, uh, right message, right person, right time. These are, these are games that we created to be played given a specific media environment. When that media environment changes, we have to change the very definition of the idea of what marketing is, hence a new rule for a new game. I was able to prove that we entered a new media environment that is radically different from one that we've ever experienced before, and I coined the term infinite media era. In that infinite media era, the ground of the modern media environment is context. The easiest way to understand this is to look at a social media feed. In a world with limited media, when social media first came out, you went to your social media feed and you noticed every feed or your feed was a chronological account of all of your network's activity, chronological, right? Because there wasn't a ton of content. Now that we have so much content, what happens is that feed moves from chronological to contextual being driven by artificial intelligence owning that context. So that is what the word context means. It means that it is the foundational ground of the modern media environment. Now, what most people want to do is they want to take this word context and say, how do I make my XYZ more contextual? To my response is that is you're trying to take an old idea and force it into a new framework. Rather, realize context means how is it found? Who does it come from? It, it is the environment that surrounds the thing. It's not how do I make the thing more contextual? And then the second part is revolution. Now, this was highly debated. Um, you know, me, Mark Schaefer, lots of other people, you know, put this word under the, the scope because it's often overutilized um, and we didn't want to use this. This is a book published by Harvard Business. Um, Harvard also had weigh in on this. We all came to the agreement that this was a revolution. This is not an evolution of old ideas. 
we must realize that this is a complete resetting of the, the media foundation or, or the, the fluid that interacts with, that connects brands and consumers. Um, and so that's why we're talking about the revolution. So in short, what is the context marketing revolution about? It's about a new idea of marketing made for a new point in time. So we're in an interesting point in time, not only new, it's just different than anybody that's been on the earth the last hundred years has been <laughs> faced with. So what, what is this situation? How has this impacted what uh, the definition of contextual marketing is? And, and particularly, uh, are people adopting it the way that you expect them to? Or are they not only having a problem with the concept, they're having a problem with taking the perspective of marketing, usually you know, from a, a marketer's perspective is uh, how do we put a message out there that sells people stuff versus how do we put something out there that is actually meant directly for these people to connect with? Yeah. So the, there's lots of answers to that question. One is, yes, there's tons of examples in the book of people who are doing this expertly and doing this well. Um, there's also a macro answer and, and specific micro answers. So at a macro level, right? Like are people doing this? Yes. The answer is resoundingly so. Um, are they knowing that they're doing context marketing? The answer is not necessarily. They're just operating within the confines of the modern environment in smart and intelligent ways that are made for that environment. Um, and then the third answer is what is holding a lot of people back from this? Well, it's the historical context of what we know. So here's the problem to your point. Exactly. What happens when you have an entire generation of marketers and business people who go through an educational process that indoctrinates them into an idea of what this means, then they go into a world and that definition no longer holds water? What happens? Well, they hold on to that thing that they know and try to make it fit into this new world. So the biggest problem that most organizations face is just this notion of change, change management and anything anytime is new, it's as hard. So organizations have a lot of organizational disciplines. Marketing was a siloed department in this idea of context marketing. It is no longer a silo. It's distributed across the moments of the customer journey. So making that change is very difficult. Depending on the size of your organization, depending on the uh, age of your organization, it becomes more hard um, or harder, I should say, for grammatical correctness. <laughs> um, so it's all over the board, but there, there's tons of examples. Like, I, I love the example of Tesla. Tesla is very much a contextual marketing organization. Um, and people are like, well, why is that the case? And I was like, well, here's the best case study in the world, right? How does a brand that does not have a product outsell the number one, manu the number one marketer in that space by a factor of three, spending one 150th of the budget to do so? Right. And that's the answer of Tesla versus Mercedes Benz. And so I go through that case study. And, and really, what you look at it, it's, it's they have a totally different definition of the word marketing. And here's how it kind of breaks down Mercedes Benz, and looking specifically, this is very specific. We're looking at United States data in 2017, comparing the Mercedes Benz C class to the Tesla Model 3. Right. At that point in time, Mercedes Benz is the number one luxury car manufacturer in the world. They're spending on average $926 and advertising cost per unit sold, and they sell 86,000 units. Now, their definition of marketing and what marketing means to their organization is they build a product, marketing then tells the world about the thing that they've built to drive demand, and then they sell that car. Right? That's, their, that's their business model. That's the relationship marketing has to that model. Now, if we were to change this definition of marketing and give it a new role, scope, and function, we see Tesla. First off, Tesla doesn't have a CMO. And what does Tesla do? 
Well, first off, they start by having a conversation with the marketplace about how do we get the world off of fossil fuels? They continue that conversation by radical innovation. Everything from his flamethrowers to the boring project to that throwing a, you know, a ball into the window, whatever, staged or not, that's all that that's the conversation they're having with the marketplace. How do we get the world off of fossil fuels and we're going to use radical innovation to do it? Through that conversation, they then build this, this massive audience that they then they ask to then help them accomplish the goal together. They then co-create this product and say, if you want this, help fund it so that we can even build it. So then they pre-sell. Now, once they then pre-sell, they then build, and then they continue to create the most amazing customer experience that's ever been known in the car buying world. If, if you have a friend that owns a Tesla, you know, because they've told you, right? That's how powerful that moment is. Now, if we look at their business model, it is not build a car, market a car, sell a car as Mercedes-Benz. It's have a conversation with the marketplace, co-create the product, then build the product, then continue to market through the most amazing customer experience. Marketing is totally different. Now, here's the nuts. What they did is they spend one 150th. Their advertising cost per unit sold is $6. They sold 276,000 cars. Asterix, those cars don't exist. Asterix, they've never made an economy car before, (laughs) right? It's just like the brief is insane. Um, And so that's the difference, right? So there there are companies who are doing this, you know, but if you were to ask Tesla, they're not going to say we're a contextual marketing organization. They're just doing what works in a modern world in an innovative way. How do organization how do organizations have to be structured and aligned in order for contextual marketing to really be as successful as it needs to be in in like today's market? Because I'm, I'm figuring there are certain certain corporate cultures that just will not get this. Uh, and maybe there are roles or people in the organization that just will not get this. But what does a, a contextual marketing or, uh, a group person have to do or, or have to kind of be worried or about or just wary of from a corporate organizational perspective? What do they have to bank on? How do they have to position this for them to be as successful as they can be? All right. So let's boil this all down to the simplest number one key thing that you have to have, right? That we've identified the key thing. So here's what we did over the past five years. Uh, we've been running the state of marketing research report. And to date, I think we're at like, you know, 40,000 survey respondents from across the globe over a five year period of time. What we've been really trying to identify with that work are what are the key differences between high performing marketing organizations and everyone else? So those organizations that are significantly beating their direct competition and happy with their marketing results. Those are two keys to being high performer. So here's what we find. The number one key difference between all high performers and everyone else is simply executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing. That's it. You have to have full executive buy-in to go down this path. And here's the problem with that is going back to that thing we talked about. What happens when you have executives who have been running a play for so many years have an educational system that they believe in, and they're unable to see there is a new world that they must change to, and they just want to hold on to those old things. This is the standard story of why you know the, the number one companies on the Fortune 500 are new, and they're not the same that they were 10 years ago. It's because innovation, when you have you know periods of time, requires change, and those unwilling to change just simply get left behind. So number one factor is executive buy into a new idea of marketing. Now, let me further that definition. What is that new definition? That new definition is marketing is no longer a siloed function with the goal of telling the world about the products you make. 
it evolves to become the, they become the owners and sustainers of all moments across the customer journey. That's it. That's the simple definition. When you start there, then everything else is possible moving forward. But without that, you can't do it. I was thinking about subscription bases. As we, we I just recently had a conversation with Teens Woe over at Zora talking about, you know, kind of this is like the 10 year mark of kind of the subscription economy mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the evolution between selling products and selling, you know, access to products and things like that. Uh, it seems like contextual marketing and subscription selling kind of go hand in hand because you're, you're on this kind of monthly, you, you, you have to show enough value each month for somebody to keep re-upping for your service. And it seems like that's the kind of thing that contextual marketing kind of helps to uh, kind of reinforce because you have to have the right context constantly all the time in real time, almost in order for you to, you know, stay connected, have meaningful interactions and, and show the value that you need to show every month in order for people to stay connected. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the answer is yes, but it's not limited to that. So really, I mean, this is a macro level theory, right? So first off, we have to understand that this is macro theory that applies to all things. Why does it apply to all things? Because we're talking about a shift in the media environment. Now to quote Marshall McLuhan, whose son and grandson I worked with to write this book, which is the notion of when the media environment changes, men change. That is a definition, right? We have to realize that what we think, how we know, how we operate, here's what's critical to marketing. How we make decisions changes when the media environment changes. What we sense and what we want changes. What we trust changes, right? So it's yes, subscription businesses need to follow contextual methodologies, but so does everyone else, right? So does Oreo. In fact, Oreo did, right? And one of the examples I use in the book is when they wanted to come up with a new product, they're, first off, I didn't know that they were the oldest cookie brand in the world, right? Oreo's been around over 100 years, right? So first off, fun fact you just learned there. Now, here's what happens. They could have gone the traditional product roadmap, which says, let's put people into a room. Let's figure out you know, what flavors we want to create. Let's get our scientists on this. Once we come up with the new flavors we want to create, hand that over to marketing, have them drive demand for the product, get the product on the shelf, normal process. Now, in this new world, remember, context is about a new way that we can relate and connect to each other. That's really what this is about. This, the, the, the biggest thing that in the infinite media era is who is the owner of the media environment. And this is what brands have to realize. We created marketing and we created all these games in a world where we owned the media environment. We were the largest creators of noise. What has happened and what I proved out mathematically was June 24th, 2009. Thanks, Tim Rondo. He did the math for me. What we find in this is that on that day, individuals become the largest creators of noise in the marketplace and will remain the largest creators of noise until the end of time. Now, here's the fascinating aspects about this noise. When you plot the noise from a brand and when you plot the noise from consumers, they have different reactions to the market. In fact, when we look at noise, noise from brands has a saturation point, meaning that there is a point that we will not surpass in that marketplace because there is diminishing law of returns. Now, when we look at consumer-created noise, there is no stop, meaning there is a constant demand for that product. And what we see is exponential growth of that type of noise. Going back to your question, right, which is, I, I went off on tangent, Brent. I, I totally forgot what I was answering. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I was just, 
I think I started with the the whole subscription thing, and you were kind of oh yeah yeah. So anyway, so once we talk about that, so that is so all things in this world uh, are affected. That's the whole point of that is that this is macro media theory, um, which then means all things inside that environment are affected by this. So it would affect anyone from Oreo. Um, and in fact, to finish that story out, what they did was they then created a contest on social media. They said, you know my Oreo creation, tell us the, the craziest flavors that you want. They get hundreds of thousands of submissions. Um, you know, the contextual part was number one, they did it with the market, right? That's the, that when I talk about the context, that's what we must realize. It's that we have to come up with ways of doing things with the market because the owners of the media environment now are the individuals. So that's one of the big key concepts of the book is learning to work with our markets, not on the market. Let's talk about small guys, folks sure. who before, I guess, 2009, uh, they had no shot of controlling anything. <laughs> now, like you said, because of technology, because of the uh, uh, kind of the the opportunities uh, to reach a global audience at scale, you know, by having a funny YouTube video or something like that, uh, there's this opportunity to start getting what people are craving right now is attention and, and being able to turn that attention into an opportunity to build a relationship and, and hopefully like a one with a mutually valued relationship with you know value being an exchange of some sort. Um, how can small folks who have traditionally not been able to capture enough attention to, you know, create a brand for themselves? Uh, cause that's kind of what everybody seems to be wanting to do right now. Uh, how can they leverage this approach in order to compete with everybody else who's basically trying to grab that megaphone and try to steer, uh, the, uh, the attention to them as opposed to the small guys? Yeah, I mean, small guys definitely can play in this world, right? This, again, it affects all people. So let's look at a couple of really awesome examples. One is there is um, a maker of clothes, right? And they are a small private manufacturer. Rather than making clothes and trying to come up with ads to get people to buy the clothes, they co-create the products with the marketplace. So they go through the production cycle with the individual people saying, what do you want? What looks does this look like? That process then builds demand for the product. So once the product is finished, demand is instantly in the product and people are buying the product. They help create it, right? So it's a different methodology of how we think about going to market. Now, yes, you could say, well, how does this apply to a traditional person that doesn't have a product they're going to create, like a restaurant or some type of mom and pop retail shop? Well, the answer there is you just have to work with your audience. You need to build a community. And the fact is you can now. You can, you can have a direct relationship and be a significant part of their lives in new and different ways. And that's what we must be working and striving towards to do. The next aspect of this is to say then any small business, big or large, go back to that customer journey. This applies to all people. Follow that customer journey across. How are people finding you? And then find ways that you can be contextual inside of that. Super easy example that's obvious that everyone knows is ratings and reviews. If you are a restaurant and someone is going to Google, where do I eat tonight? What is one of the number one things that they look at? They're going to look at the ratings and reviews. If you don't have a process that's helping improve those ratings and review systems, if you don't understand that that is a powerful driver, probably more powerful than any advertisement you'll ever create to your bottom line, then you're missing the boat. That is contextual marketing because you're not the one telling people to go eat at your restaurant. It's other people in the environment giving that message. And that's where the context comes in. Let's talk about something that we kind of touched on uh, last week and this this idea of you know, almost like everybody has to be not only a, you know, you know, a business, but a media company business or having the ability to create audiences. And like you said, communities by using these technologies. 
you can't operate like uh you know set aside from oh well we 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 can create content but then we'll go to you know x x business for or x media company to to help us it's almost like you have to build and kind of integrate into your your business model a media arm at this point where you, you we, we're doing this right here and you're using, leveraging you know the linkedin mm -hmm. uh broadcasting you know technology but being able to create your own kind of broadcast everybody's kind of sitting at home uh right now sheltering in place and and trying to figure out how do i get attention how do i how do i get people to pay attention to me out of all the other things that are going on and it's it seems like everybody has to not only think context but also think some kind of like media broadcast uh arm of this at this point how do they go about doing that in a way that differentiates themselves from everybody else who's trying to do this stuff right now that's a massive question uh, and there's lots of ways to answer that question depending on where you are in your market uh what kind of a brand you are but let, let's, let's give some simple answers uh to that question so answer number one is yes um a brand you know that, that was we knew out of the content revolution you know if you read content glut if you read you know, if you followed any of the major content thought leaders we've been telling people for uh, probably going on a decade at this point you have to have a content production arm right so here's there's lots of values to that number one is the ability to connect with your audience on your own terms right so you have push button access you're building an audience um you know subscribers fans and followers that's direct access number one that's that's a thing that you need to have if you don't have that you just don't have that lever that you can pull so that content gives you that number two that content gives you the ability to to stay relevant in those people's lives past just the product conversation so in the book, I talk about five elements of context, and one of those is purpose. Now, most people get this wrong. We can talk about this later. Um, but here's the big underlying thing of why purpose matters. It allows a brand to have a conversation with the audience past the product. That's it. right? It allows you to be more relevant past the small relevance you have in someone's life. Simple example. If you are a provider of XYZ, it doesn't matter. Let's just, let's just use a pencil or a pen, some tiny little fractional product. You do, don't own enough attention, nor will you ever own enough attention in that person's life to talk about pens unless they are just that tiny little sliver fraction of people who are just crazy about pens. That's at that 0.0001% of your total addressable market. But if you have a conversation about how do we as a brand and then align to any conversation that's happening inside of the marketplace, now you can have a conversation with those people and stay a part of their lives. And if you go back to that old school idea of top of mind, this is how we then are staying inside of people's lives to have those, com th those relevant conversations by focusing on something past the product. That's all purpose really means. Um, and so I think, you know, if you have a content arm, you can then have these purpose-driven conversations and then continue that conversation past just that product usage um, or that product value in that person's life. Um, and then the, the other one, if we talk about future scale, which is there is no future for your brand without first party data. This is the next data revolution that we have to have. So let's take two steps back. Content marketing starts, really starts in 1999 when Seth Godin comes out with permission marketing. The goal of that book was to teach people, you create something, you give them value, they give you something of value in exchange, and that value is their email address so you can now market to them. That was the whole idea of I have permission to talk to you and communicate with you. Moving forward, 
Yes, direct access is powerful, but what we also now need is we need to realize that the connective tissue of an omni-channel experience moving forward is no longer going to be the third-party cookie. It's going to be the first-party cookie. So now what we need to do is have a first-party data collection system, and if we underscore that, content is a massive part of that. If I create content people want, they will give me something of value in exchange for that. That value is their first-party data. Now I can do a couple of major things. One, I can have better targeting efficiencies. Two, I can create omni-channel experiences. Three, now I have a much greater effect from that content moving forward. So the answer is yes, you have to have content. We just have to think about it in a different way. You know, one thing that seems to be making a huge comeback, it's it, five years ago, I would have never have thought this, is, is this newsletter like revolution going on here. Yeah. Um, you, you, our, our mutual uh, friend, uh, Steve uh, Gilmore, talks a lot about this, notifications and newsletters and all these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, Twitter just bought Review not too long ago. HubSpot bought a, a company, it's, you know, newsletter company. Uh, what do you make of this? How, how is this something that is something that you... It's particularly like you know the small and mid-sized businesses. How do they leverage this kind of rebirth of, of the newsletter? Because to me, it's like okay, th there's <laughs> there's a lot of stuff out here, and now we're we're well, throwing newsletters back in. Uh, well, so let's let's let, the mix, man. Let's take a couple. Let's let's look at this through a couple of lenses. Number one is there's a difference between a newsletter and a newsletter. There are crappy ones, there are horrible ones, and then there are phenomenal ones. The resurgence that we're watching is really kind of driven by Patreon or Patreon, however you want to say it, and some of the and Substack and, and some of these other things. Now, what those newsletters are, are hyper-specific micro feeds of a very specific type of content. Essentially, we're moving into a world where I'm not going to the BBC because I like the journalist the BBC hires. I'm just going to go to the journalists I want, and they're going to send me newsletters, right? It's no different than if you were just following them on social channels, except... It's a different format and it's a different delivery method, right? So rather than you having to scroll through a feed and find the things you want, you're just getting them right into your inbox, whether that's going to be read through an RSS reader, through some type of Feedly account or whatever else. That's the big thing that we're watching. The other big thing that that is powerful here, that is a yes and, is how these things are being paid for. Because our old newsletter, there's a couple basic payment models. One is free. You don't pay anything. In that model... I simply just want to have a connection with you. I'm going to create content and give you this newsletter, right? That's a basic free model. There's these uh, ad supported model, which is people are, you know, buying and, and paying ads to then support that brand. That's usually like, so first as a brand produces it on their own, they take the cost. The second is a third party puts it on other brands pay for that cost, regular subscription model. The third, the interesting one is individual payment model. That's what Substack and what uh, Patreon are really doing, which is I'm going to pay you $5 a month for this content because I want to support individual journalism. I want to support your creative efforts. And then also we start to look at what happens in these newsletters. And some of them just aren't newsletters. They may be like, here are the latest three art projects I created. Here are the new lyrics to the song I'm writing. Like it, it's a whole nother genre of really like what is happening. And it's much more aligned to people are willing to pay for specific content that they value. Um, and they're, they're doing this. It's really more of a resurgence, like a restarting of, of the next era of media. How do, uh, how does it fit in the kind of the big scheme of the marketing toolkit? If, if I'm a, if I'm a small business particularly, and I'm, trying to kind of wrap my hands around what do I need to do 
right off the bat that's going to get me the most bang for my buck it's going to get me kind of the most uh direct attention that i can start to deal do you know kind of interact with people and, and convert that attention into something tangible what would they do coming out the box right now uh, it's, once again, it's so hard to give a, a macro answer for everyone because everyone's going to be different, right? It, depending on the business is going to depend on what you should do. But should you start thinking about audiences again and how do I build a specific audience? The answer is yes, but let's underscore the reason why. The old reason why was because I wanted push button access to those people. That still has a lot of value, but there's now other value. And then other value is where we really start to go back to this word of context. Because once you have that audience, you can do the following. You can co-create with that audience. So go back to what Tesla did. They co-created with that audience. Go back to what we talked about that, that um, the, the small fashion brand did. They co-created the products with their audience. Once you have that connection, take the next step and start to bring them into the process and co-create with them. And it doesn't matter where you are along the customer journey. If you're just simply co-creating content with them, that helps build your awareness. And once again, that awareness carries a different context because it's not the brand having the conversation. It's people on the brand's behalf having the conversation with other people, which is the context of the modern era, right? That's how we trust. We trust things coming from other people more so than we do brands now. Um, so, so that's the big power, right? It's you have direct audience access. Then you also now have an army that you can co-create with. And that's really the big power because that then drives all kinds of things. It drives content creation, product development, drives your support channel, um, and I love how, you know, so many brands use their audience to run their entire support channel. This happens at a micro scale all the way down to a micro scale. Uh, the term that you mentioned a lot is co-create. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it, it, to me, it makes a lot of sense because if you have co-creators, that means they they have skin in the game. They they kind of feel a bit of ownership in whatever gets co-created. But then there are a lot of organizations and traditional markets that don't want to co-create a thing. They want to be able to have all the power. They want to have all the say. And are those people like going the way of the dodo bird? Are they able? Do you yeah. see people that have that kind of mindset? Are they able to be converted over to this new era of contextual marketing? I mean, I always say not all puppies make it. I mean, let's just be <laughs> honest. Not all brands make it. Um, and we're in a very big transitional period and point of time. We are literally moving into an entirely new world, right? And so that's the big thing. Like that was the big thing I wanted people to know was you can't just carry old ideas forward because they weren't made for this time. That's not the game that we're supposed to be playing. You're trying to just hold on to things. You're not, you're, you're trying to avoid the hard stuff. And so, yes, those brands will struggle. Now, are there going to be plenty of examples moving forward where, where phenomenal successes happen that weren't co-created? The answer is yes. But here's the difference. An organization that has the discipline and understands co-creation on a large scale will have a muscle that they will allow them to move faster, quicker, and be more efficient and more effective. It becomes competitive differentiation, a competitive advantage, just as agility is a competitive advantage moving forward. So yeah, are there companies that are going to succeed that don't follow the agile process? Yes. But you're going to find it much more likely to achieve success if you follow an agile process you're going to be much more likely to achieve success if you co-create that success i gotta ask you because you're 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 on the marketing side i gotta get your take and of course you wrote the book of course uh i gotta get your take on, on clubhouse what is clubhouse <laughs> something that's just for the moment or is it for you know is it creating a movement of sorts i don't know 
Um, I don't think Clubhouse created a movement. I think Clubhouse is an app that helped latch on to a movement that was already happening. And that movement was the resurgence of audio. Um, and so podcasting to me is nothing more than uh, TV, you know, talk shows of, of days gone by. But what we must realize, it's now in a new format. It's, it's when you want it. It's how you want it. Um, so, it, you know, it's essentially the Netflix of audio talk radio. And that's what we're looking at podcasting as. Now, Clubhouse then already just builds upon that, right? It's just an audio format. But then again, it's a co-created audio format. People are all engaging. That's what's so amazing. It's not, you know, Clubhouse making the content. It's other people making the content that other people want to come and consume. Um, so you can go back and you can see that through a co-creation lens. To, the, to answer the point, I don't really know. Um, I, I think it's interesting. I, who knows what will happen? But I think right now it's just in a type cycle. Um, we'll yep. see how it, it it filters out and funnels out. Yeah, I do, are you going with the term social audio? I'm I'm hearing that thrown around, and and quite honestly, I just do not like that term. But <laughs> are we are we is that what we're calling this right now? Social audio? I guess we could. <laughs> uh, it, it is social. It is audio. Um, so maybe we could call it social audio. But, I, I don't want to call it social, <laughs> but I I'm, I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's it's, it's a fascinating uh, thing to see, like something that I, I didn't really hear of la a year ago at this time, and now it's like everything everybody is talking about is this clubhouse thing. I was just curious to get your take. Well, on I mean, that. last year we all talked about TikTok, like that's, Zoom, TikTok, I mean, and Zoom. I guess. Yeah, I mean that's just the that's the media that's the media cycle, right? We have to have something to talk about. We all fixate on one thing. We all you know blow this up to a very large conversation, um, you know, and, and that's that's what happens. I mean, yeah, it's cool, um, but to be honest, like. Do I know of any brands that went on Clubhouse and that broke through and sold a you know, bajillion dollars of anything? No, <laughs> I don't. I'm starting to see vert, like uh, conferences, virtual kind of conferences go to go to uh, Clubhouse. I, I think it's like an experimental kind of thing, which, okay, I get that. I, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But it seems like, you know, just kind of my take on it is Clubhouse as a standalone thing. I don't see th that it actually can stand alone without somebody replicating like a Facebook, which I think they're already starting to talk about doing that or, or somebody acquiring it. And, and I think, I think that's what the, the position is for this thing. It's it, their positioning to be acquired by somebody with that, with uh, Andrews and Horowitz kind of seems like it's kind of pushing it pretty hard to, to get that valuation up. But that's, that's just me. I, I, I I, I'm on record for being kind of a, a clubhouse skeptic only as a standalone and probably because the hype has just gotten way out of <laughs> too much yeah. hype for this thing. Other than that, I think the technology itself, I think there's some interesting things around. Yeah. I think th there's an interesting thing we could talk about, which is format, right? So in this traditional social format, it's all text. Um, so conversations are lagged. Um, so it's you know very hard to have real time conversations. Um, there's overlap. So like, you know, I said this, but while I was typing, someone else said these five things. It is a different aspect of Clubhouse because it's audio. It is in real time. Um, people can have conversations uh, at, at scale and at distance in a new and different way. Um, I think what will be interesting is like monetization of like, all right, you know, are we going to start, you know, all right, we're going to take a five second break. We're going to listen to an ad. Um, this channel is supported by X. There's lots of different methods they could use. Um, and I think that's what will get interesting is then, then how does that then roll out? 
Um, you know, do we, does everyone have, do we move from LinkedIn live shows? Do we have this and do we have a Facebook show and do we have a Twitter show and do we have a clubhouse show? Um, do we have now, is the Brent Leary show now like syndicated across all these different <laughs> platforms all the time? Um, those are some interesting questions we'll figure out in the future. Well, actually, we already figured that out because it is because StreamYard it does allow you to. This is running right now on LinkedIn and Twitter and YouTube, so the technology is already there. But I, the attention can it be carved up? Can can people get enough attention with all these different formats and channels and things like that to actually connect? That's that's kind of where I'm I'm trying to. Well, you tell me, you know, Mister Context Dude, um, what's going to happen in the year ahead? What are we going to be talking about? Once we get past this, uh, you know, stay uh, stay in place COVID era, we're going to get out of this eventually. I think we're going to get out of it sometime by the end of this year. What should people be preparing themselves for when it comes to this contextual marketing thing coming out of this uh, this COVID era here? Well, they, they need to be figuring out who the new personas are going to be. What are those personas going to want and how are they going to make decisions? Um, and what the value is. So if you go to the, the, one of the under, underlying core competencies or, or ideas of context, it is there's context to a moment. And the moment is what is the individual's value they want to obtain in that moment? So go back to your customer journey maps, go back to your personas, figure out what is going to change in those personas. What value do they want to obtain in those key moments? How is that going to change? And then that's your answer. I mean, that's what you go do. So they're going to be like one big thing. Yeah, everyone's going to figure out how do we get back as quickly as possible. Um, but then in doing so, it's, it's going to be just go back to the basics of do your persona work, make sure you understand what value people want in the moments, and then how can you contextually deliver that value in those moments? Man, that's all, that, all, that takes being able to aggregate data, analyze data, uh, come up with something, a, a good interaction opportunity from that data, and then doing the interaction and kind of putting that into a virtuous cycle so that one interaction does not a relationship make you have to have several interactions to create that that relationship real relationship opportunity so that's a lot of data mm -hmm. that has to be analyzed aggregate aggregated analyzed and then create some kind of an interaction just to get to the opportunity to do it all over again and over again until they become a customer wow how did how does how does a a little guy, how should they, how should they go about mm -hmm. connecting the data to the interaction opportunity? Because that's where the context kind of sits. Yeah. So, I mean, if we put this in the purview of a little guy, right, there's things a little guy's never going to have. A little guy's never going to have a data team. A little guy's probably not going to have a super sophisticated set of technologies because they're expensive until we get, you know, it's just like TVs, like we marketing technology in a few years will be, and everyone will have, and it'll be super ubiquitous and, and inexpensive. It's already trending that way. Um, so yes, they'll have stuff, but here's what they really need to understand. Personal conversations with people, right? It goes back to, you know, one of my good friends, Mark Schaefer, we'll talk about it's the most human company that wins. I totally agree in the future. It's all about, listen, we have the ability to connect infinitely in so many new ways, but we're not. So what we need to do is just simply say, if you're a small guy, find ways to have honest conversations with people more often. And here's a couple of easy, sim simple scenarios. Number one, person buys something from you, right? Super, the most basic thing. Did you pick up the telephone and call them to say thank you 
And is there anything I can make better about this experience? Number one, why did you buy from me? Number two, uh, were you happy with that experience? Number three, how can I make it better? Just ask those three simple questions. Traditionally, what we try to do is we try to scale everything and try to make it a survey. Yes, there are places and yes, there is some value from surveys. But at the same time, have you ever gone back from a survey and say, damn, that was a great experience? (laughs) You don't. Right. And here's what surveys don't allow is they don't allow for human context. They don't allow for you, the individual who's supposed to be running the campaigns to really figure out what is specific. Because if you ask a survey and somebody just simply types in a, a line, you don't have the ability to follow up with what do you mean by that? What does that specifically mean? And that's really where the, the data lies for how do you improve and how you get better. So don't worry about large scale data. Don't worry about all this different stuff. Number one, remember, it's all about talking to people and getting that human connection. Try to find ways that you can build that into your process. Maybe there's a simple workflow. Someone buys something, we reach out, or, you know, and depending on who you want to reach out to and what information you want to get. So it's that small data that's important. Um, and so don't worry about the big data if you're a small guy. It's what small guys have done best uh, you know, throughout the centuries. You know, that's you know, the mom and pops. They build the loyalty one, you know, interaction, one hello at a time when people are coming their doors. I guess people are trying to figure out how do they replicate that digitally? Because that seems to be that's the scaling opportunity. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, how do we keep our our, you know, our opportunity for the one on one, the face to face? We're great at that. But it seems like in order for them to survive over time, particularly over this time, it's the how do you replicate that? digitally because we're not having as many face-to-face interactions as we possibly can or we want to and chances are the only way to actually you know scale that up is digitally yeah and that gets us back around to this conversation we started with which is this new consumer fuel media environment right so how are there ways that you can work with your audience and then create those things let's go through a bunch of examples number one i love when i go to a restaurant and there's coloring menus for kids here's the question to you if you own a restaurant Who's designing those coloring menus, right? What if you allowed people to submit like things that they want people to color, right? Why are you the one picking that stuff? Why don't you work with them? Then, then two, then there's, you now have all this stuff that's being colored, right? Are you then sharing those things? Are, are there ways that you can create content and media? And then let's go back and underscore that. If you're a small guy, you don't have the time to do that, right? You don't have a content department. You're going to have very limited budget. So learn to work with your audience to help co-create those things. Right, help build a network of people that you can offload that to. That that may be as simple as saying, like, you know, here are it's our frequent shopper alliance, and here's what we do. You you help us create the new content. You help us tell these stories. Um, we help feature and highlight you. Like, figure out some way that you can do it in a communal fashion that removes the burden of creation from your shoulders, and it's shared. Because once you share it, those other people are happy to share it. Right. Because now they're becoming a more vibrant part of their community. They they shop with you because they love you. Right? They're very happy to tell people about you. It's, it's you know, it's once again, we know the term advocacy. We know the term advocates. Find new ways to work with those people to then help create that content. Um, and then, two is you can then have plenty of conversations past your product. Right. You could have conversations about, you know, it could be whatever that's relevant to you and your audience. Find some way, shape or form to do it. And then the third is don't discount kids. When I say don't discount kids, don't discount the fact that there's a generation, an entire generation, I call it Generation I, who their number one job that they want to be in the future is an influencer. 
there are already massive content creators all around you. Find ways to tap into them. And here's the crazy thing. The tools that those people have, those tools that those kids have, allows them to create things that are insanely possible. Here's my question. When are we going to get to a world? And it's not when, it's when does this world come? When a 12-year-old creates an award-winning movie and wins all the awards, right? Wins all the Oscars or Academies for a movie that he created on his home computer or she created on her home computer. That day's not far away, right? Because the creation tools are almost there where anyone can do them and use them for almost free. They can create things that are at scale that are insane, that can compete with large production capabilities of CGI and all that. And it can be done by a kid. It's like, just don't, just don't discount who can create content. I'll, I'll, I'll just throw this in and then I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Cause I know you got other things to do, but I mean, after hearing that, it, yeah, you can see that coming. I, I literally, uh, on YouTube, there's all these, uh, reaction videos, like first reaction to this first reaction to that. Uh, there's one that I saw first reaction to the, like all the old school eighties music that I, I grew up with. So these are these two young kids, they have this channel and uh, like every day they just put out <laughs> these first. You know, I think they've been at it for two years. Do you know they have closing on 800,000 subscribers? Not only that, on uh, a couple of weeks ago on uh, Saturday Night Live, they did a skit about these two kids. And all they're doing is just listening to music that their parents listen to and kind of giving their take on it. Yeah, yeah. it's a revolutionary Hilarious. stuff. But look, yeah. they're using the tool. They, they found something that they're very passionate about. And they got 800,000 followers <laughs> All right, so let's just underscore this because I think a lot of people are going to have a problem with this. The number one thing that you can do when you're creating this content is remove the brand lens. This does not have to be polished. This does not have to be something that's approved. What you need to be is human. You need That's the whole point of this context. You need to be as human and as relatable as possible. Um, you know, it can be cute. Like go back to the example of the Cowboy Museum, right? COVID hits, the Cowboy Museum shuts down. If you didn't see this, it's phenomenal. Cowboy M Museum shuts down. They take their head of security because he's the only person who's going to be in the building because of COVID. And they turn over the reins of social media to the head of security. This is a cow. This is a literal cowboy who is not technically savvy. Luddite would be a very appropriate term for this individual. <laughs> he takes over social media and it blows up they go from like a few thousand to hundreds of thousands of followers in like a month and it's all because of the just the radical uh humanity that this person employs because he has no clue what he's doing <laughs> right and that's what works so don't overthink this content right in the social world and if you're a small brand you really don't have the same brand externalities or, or the concerns about your brand that a major brand would have so you can throw pretty much anything at the wall and if it doesn't stick, you just take it down, right? So really move quickly, test lots of ideas, but be as human as possible, and don't really worry about something big and polished. It's better to get something out and test it than it is to spend a lot of time debating when if it's going to work. I'll just echo uh, sentiments from my buddy Ty Bethel there. This has been great. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> and thanks, and thanks, Claire, too. Claire Juliet Beal over at SAS. Uh, had a great conversation with their CIO just last week. Talk a lot of a lot of similarities around data and the amount of it and what to do with it. So great uh, conversation, Sweezy. I'm I'm just gonna stop calling you. You know your first name. Just cause I'm gonna be like everybody else. Just call him Sweezy, folks. That's that's how he rolls. But hey, man, it's been really uh, great having you join me. And 
we're gonna have to do this again because when you start talking about influencer mark that went down a whole other track that we just don't have time to talk about right now. Oh, that's a whole other world. I believe the, the 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 future influencer and and you combine that with this gig world. There's a whole other world that's going to happen through that. So you're going to have to come back at some point. We're going to have to talk a little bit more about that one. Sure. All right, man. Thanks again for your time, and thank you guys for checking it out. I'll be back Thursday, I think. Yeah, because we're doing the whole CRM Players Executive Roundtable Part Two. Wow, that's going to be a big one. But in the meantime, have a great day. Talk to you later.